Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Cage Kimaladun. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Christopher Costa discussed reflections on counterterrorism and the future of terrorism threat. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing our speaker today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. Good afternoon. It's nice to see so many members and guests here today, and I'd like to welcome those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio. This meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations comes to you from the Elks Events Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983. This is our 455th meeting, with a foreign affairs expert invited to speak and answer questions on issues critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. The Midcoast Forum's website, midcoastforum.org, contains audios of past forum talks and information on upcoming forum speakers. Audios of our speakers are now also available on the Maine Monitor website, mainmonitor.org. If you're interested in keeping informed about key foreign affairs issues and decide you would like to become a member of the forum and attend our talks, you will find our membership forum on the forum's website. Today, we are pleased to have Mr. Christopher Costa here today to speak on reflections on counterterrorism and the future of the terrorism threat. Christopher Costa has been the executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. since 2018. He is an expert on counterterrorism, and prior to his current position, he served as a special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council. Colonel Costa's 35-year government career included 25 years in counterintelligence, human intelligence, and with the Special Operations Forces in the United States Army, serving in Central America, Europe, and throughout the Middle East. He ran a wide range of intelligence and sensitive operations in Panama, Bosnia, and the first and second Iraq wars in Afghanistan. Colonel Costa earned two bronze stars for sensitive human intelligence work in Afghanistan. He served as the first civilian squadron deputy director while assigned to the Navy Special Warfare Development Group with Navy SEALs. In 2013, Colonel Costa was inducted into the United States Special Operations Commando Hall of Honor for lifetime service to the U.S. Special Operations. Colonel Costa has been a senior adjunct instructor with Norwich University's Bachelor of Science in Strategic Studies and Defense Analysis program. In addition, he has taught terrorism-related courses at Eckerd College, ECPI University, and Schenectady Community College. He has been an adjunct professor for the Georgetown University Security Studies program, Walsh School of Foreign Studies, since 2021. Colonel Costa has published articles in Terrorism and Political Violence and Terrorism-Related Opinion Pieces in the New York Times, Washington Post, Politico, and The Hill, and The Washington Examiner. 
He has been interviewed as a subject matter expert on terrorism by the BBC, ABC, and Fox News. He holds a master's in strategic intelligence from American Military University, a second master's in national security and strategic studies from the US Naval War College, and a bachelor's degree from Norwich University. Chris, I'd like to welcome you to the Midcoast Forum. Thanks, George. Um, I want to say right up front what a privilege it is for me to be here, and I mean that sincerely, because I love the opportunity to be able to give back just a little bit in my post-military, post-government career, and this is an opportunity to do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a intellectual capital here in Maine. I discovered yesterday meeting with board members of this forum and having a great discussion late afternoon and into the evening hours. So this is, to be sure, a privilege for me. Um, and before I dive right in, because I know we're, we're uh, crunch for time, I just want to say hello to our family. K Kate and Scott are here. Uh, the Sawyer family, former Marine Colonel, graduated Norwich University, and he was an upperclassman that I don't want to embarrass today. Um, Kevin, it's great to see you. George, very much appreciate being here. So what I'd like to do today is talk about the future threat, and it's focused on counterterrorism. It's focused on my experience at the White House, in the Trump White House, and I hope it's apparent to everyone here when I'm done speaking that it doesn't matter whether my team served a Republican president or a Democrat pr president. The connective tissue to the work that we did went back to 9-11 and before. Our job was to pr keep the nation safe from a terror attack. We all saw and understand it, what happened on 9-11. The connective tissue to the counter counterterrorism security group, which is a euphemism for a group of Americans in the interagency that are focused day in and day out. And you don't know their names, you don't know their faces. Those individuals that are focused on the threat are doing that work right now. What I want to also do is just provide a little context for my history. You heard my bio read by George, which I very much appreciate. All of that said, you'll note that my career bridged two worlds, the Cold World, Cold War, and, of course, the post-9-11 world. The, count, the, uh, the Cold War experience, in many ways, has come full circle, and we can talk about that in questions and answers. Ukraine we can discuss, although it's not directly a counterterrorism matter. I've done some speaking on that, some editorials, and I'm very much engaged with people outside of the government in trying to understand what's happening, like many people in this room in the Ukraine. But that Cold War experience was a great rehearsal in many ways for what happened post 9-11. What am I talking about? Well, I want you to have a mental image of two sumo wrestlers. Not necessarily a pleasant image, uh, no, certainly no offense to sumo wrestlers at all. Uh, with all due respect intended, I want you to have that image because that was the world that we saw and dealt with pre-9-11. That was your Cold War paradigm. Two superpowers faced off against each other. The Warsaw Pact 
Russia, the Soviet Union, and then the United States. And then the wall came down, and then what happened? We, the image I want you to have in your head now is a soccer team, a children's soccer team, kids chasing after soccer balls, because we were wrestling with what are the future threats back in the 1990s. And in many ways, some of our work was a rehearsal for post 9-11, because that was the first time, arguably, in the last 40 years, that the interagency, CIA, FBI, DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, all the alphabet soup of DC started working together in places like the Balkan Theater of Operations, right? You remember Bosnia in the 1990s, American forces went there. That was the dress rehearsal for all of us that worked together against wicked problems on the ground in Bosnia. Problems that, in many ways, I can't talk about them to this day, but suffice to say, there were bad actors that we were tracking. 9-11 happens, all of those individuals that worked together in the Balkans came together to start working on our threats that were global. That almost sounds like cliche today. All of that is to say, the work that I did as an intelligence officer supremely prepared me for working at the White House as a policymaker. Because I understood, and I say this with all humility, I understood the importance of receiving the most critical intelligence we have on terrorism matters, and I knew the questions to ask analysts, and I knew what the red lines were. I couldn't ask an analyst what their recommendation was for policy. I was now a policymaker. I was no longer an intelligence officer. But having the experience of knowing the other end of the spectrum, what it takes to collect intelligence, to run an agent, to meet a source, that helped me in my role at the White House. So another scene setter, and then we're going to dive right into the first year of the administration to set the stage for where we are today. Understand that the post-Bin Laden world had broken out after the Arab Spring, failed promises of peace breaking out throughout the Middle East, throughout the Maghreb, North Africa. The, a tribal landscape was even interrupted and disrupted, if you will. And then, of course, came ISIS out of the ashes of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, of course, responsible for 9-11. So I stood on the Golan Heights, looking down into Syria with my Israeli colleagues. While I served at the White House, I made very few trips. I, I walked to the White House every day, and I walked to the White House, or, home from the White House every evening. My wife would walk me there and walk me home. Sometimes 17, 18 hours later. We work seven days a week. Not everyone worked that hard, but the terrorism team was focused on a, the global threat. I didn't get away from DC except for a couple trips, but that trip to the Golan Heights overlooking Syria was really important because it's emblematic, it's representative of what we're dealing with today. What am I talking about? Although I was responsible for counterterrorism, 
for the defeating ISIS, my team, this large enterprise of counterterrorism professionals, military, foreign partners. Though I was responsible for all of that, like many of my colleagues, I was on the Golan Heights looking into Syria, and I understood that there was ISIS terrorists, Al-Qaeda terrorists, there were Hezbollah proxy groups working with Iran, pro-Assad forces, the Syrian leader, anti-Assad forces, Turks, Russians, Iranians, all in this valley. And I thought, that represents, the light went on. Midway through my tour at the White House, the light went on, that this is more about countering influence, malign influence of all kinds of different actors. Yes, I was focused in my team and Mr. Chris Miller, who was my successor, was focused on defeating ISIS, going after Al-Qaeda. At the end of the day, it was about countering influence of malign actors that want to undermine United States foreign policy objectives. And I don't mean to oversimplify a complex environment, but th that day, the light went on for me. This, this Syrian landscape was a little bit like a, like a metaphor for what we're dealing with today. Now, flash forward, it's, it's 2023, right? And what are we worried about? Countering malign China influence, countering Russian influence, countering, excuse me, Iran influence. So reflect on that and we can come back to that in questions and answers. But let me tell you about week one, day one, because this too is a representative of what we were dealing with, a representative of what we dealt with from a counterterrorism standpoint. First and foremost, a decision had to be made on day one at the White House. Were we going to execute a raid against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? Were we going to do that or not? President Obama had teed that up for President Trump and us. He didn't make the decision, rightly so. He reserved that for the new administration. So there was a significant threat emanating from Yemen. So my first week, our team made a recommendation to the president that we execute that mission. The mission was executed. We lost a Navy SEAL on the objective. And I always say the SEAL's name, his name was Ryan Owens, because not only did I recommend that we executed that raid, but I knew Ryan from the command that I served in with Navy SEALs. If that was going to happen, happening that day was very appropriate because that really set the stage for myself and this new team in the Trump administration that policy decisions have consequences. The second threat that we had that you may or may not remember was the threat to commercial aviation. That's gotten lost in all the news cycles, but there was a pervasive and significant threat to commercial aviation. Our adversaries were going to bring down a commercial plan. We started working on that on day one. The community, of course, the intelligence community was working on that leading up to that first day in the new administration. The handover took place, and then that was our problem. That was our problem to solve. There was a laptop ban, and there was a variety of things that took place that were 
not visible to the American public or to the world public for that matter, but it played out no airlines were brought down. The third problem, we had to accelerate our, command, or our um, campaign against ISIS. We had to ramp up that campaign. And again, to be sure, counterterrorism is a team sport and there's no Republican or Democrat. We took some of the, the great policies that were put in place not to be taken out of context. I didn't love all of the policies that preceded me in my position. All of that said, there was great continuity between my predecessors and myself. And we continued to work on these problems while we accelerated the campaign against ISIS. We wanted to go faster and we wanted to um, make some policy decisions to arm Kurds, for example, our foreign partners so critical to the fight, the Syrian Democratic Forces. We made those decisions. And the last point I want to make is we were also responsible for bringing home hostages that were held overseas by terrorists. American citizens held in Africa, American citizens held in Syria, American citizens held in Pakistan. I was responsible for that with my team. So I want to demystify, and all of you have an appreciation for foreign policy outputs and what happens at the National Security Council. I realize that, but I just want to contextualize in a few words what my role was with my team. We ran the Counterterrorism Security Group, which again was a, simply a policy coordination committee, but it was the real life 24 in that no one operated in our office operationally overseas. We were staff working for the President of the United States, but we chased down the threats and had the bully pulpit of the President to ensure that the interagency was dialed in on whatever those threats were across the globe, threats to U.S. interests overseas, threats to partners overseas. In short, I want to offer a bottom line up front and then identify a couple other issues that I think might be of interest, and then we'll wrap up. I'm often asked, what capabilities should we start, increase, or continue? In short, we have to start to recognize the point I made from the Golan Heights, that counterterrorism is a discrete operation that's part of a broader fight. And that fight now is called, another euphemism, great power competition, right? Countering China, countering Russia, but at the same time, counterterrorism operations are still playing out. Syria is a great model. U.S. forces, thankfully, in my view, stayed on the ground, a small footprint in Syria with our foreign partners. They weren't pulled out, which almost happened. They're on the ground countering R Russian activities. At the same time, they're there to go after remnants of ISIS. But it's a small footprint. So my bottom line is we have to start recognizing that these campaigns will play out for the United States to not only counter malign influence from Africa to Asia, presence matters, but it needs to be, second point, small footprint of special operators in a mix from the interagency. Small footprint. 
no large-scale deployments. Again, this is my perspective based on my experience. And we have to continue to build on the partnerships that we have. Our foreign partners are critical to this fight, but also our interagency partners. And now, especially when we're talking about things like recovering hostages overseas, there's a partnership between the U.S. government and former families of hostages and nonprofits. The paradigm has changed. Our adversaries are extremely complex now and diffuse. What are the biggest threats I'm often asked? A reconstituted ISIS, a rebranded Al-Qaeda. We still have to be cognizant of lone wolves, but coming from all sides of the extremism spectrum, we have to worry in, about racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists as well as jihadists or Islamist terrorists. We have to worry about both. So is counterterrorism over-militarized? Because the other policy I started working on day one was our direct action policy. Historically, in the last five years, my history, I've, I've not talked about direct action because the policy was highly sensitive and classified. I won't talk about it very much. Suffice to say, if you want to read the policy, you can now go online because it was released by the current administration. They made a decision to declassify much of the work that we did. All of that said, it was about going after our adversaries overseas and striking terrorists. There's no better way of saying it. That's what we did to pressure ISIS while we were trying to defeat them in the physical caliphate in Syria and Iraq. I think it was a sound policy, and there's a lot of continui continuation between the work that we did in the current administration, albeit I have not read the current policy because it's classified. <clears throat> what else do I want to say as we wrap up? The importance of hostage recovery. Caitlin Coleman was a backpacker on the ground in Afghanistan, and she subsequently had children when she in captivity after being rolled up, captured, kidnapped by the Taliban and turned over to a brutal terrorist network called the Haqqanis. My office, my team, the Americans I would love for you to meet and foreign partners, we didn't question why somebody was where they were or what they were doing. If you're an American and you're overseas and you're held hostage, or now, as the paradigm sh shifted, and now you're wrongfully detained by another country, the United States wants to resolve your cases. I left the White House with unresolved hostage cases. I could tick off the names. Um, it's very painful um, to talk about the cases we didn't resolve. I still stay in touch with the families, but we resolved the Coleman case. Caitlin was brought home, reunited to her family. She was recovered. Pressure was put on the Pakistani government. I hope the whole story is told someday. That's another story I can't tell. Suffice to say, pressure was placed on the Pakistani government, and Caitlin was reunited with her family here in the United States. I saw Caitlin the other night. A couple other stories you didn't hear 
about. It was lost in the, the uh, sarcophagus media uh, world of DC, which by the way, Maine is very much not DC, and that's the highest compliment I could pay to everyone here. Um, but we did something that was quite impressive. There was a Benghazi conspirator that was overseas, in some place overseas in Africa. And we had actionable intelligence, predictable, continuous, thorough. We knew where he was. In my office, my team pushed our administration, the Trump administration at the time, to ensure that we brought him to justice, this Benghazi conspirator. Low level, albeit not a significant planner, but he was there the night the ambassador was killed in Benghazi. The United States brought him back from overseas. He faced a trial and he's gone to jail for 20 years. That is another counterterrorism story that wasn't kinetic. It wasn't about striking someone overseas. It was about delivering a different form of justice. And I'm very grateful for having participated in that, but that's an example I want to share with everyone here of policy driving operations, right? Not just staff officers, but staff officers making sure the United States does the bidding of the people, bringing somebody to justice. I had some really bad days, probably more bad days than good days, those 18-hour days, but I will say that working at the White House was the greatest privilege of my career. But we had, as I said, some bad days, such as the Las Vegas shooting occurred while I was at the White House, targeted violence not considered definitionally as terrorism, statutorily as terrorism. Days later, we had American small footprint of soft operators, and we lost three special operators overseas and a Nigerian partner. And then, the last day of the month, there was an attack in New York City, you might remember it, where a self-radicalized ISIS wannabe got in a vehicle, drove down a bicycle path, and killed eight people and severely wounded many others. Look, counterterrorism hasn't ended for me. I went to the trial of Sapoff up in New York just so I could see him, and uh, it was quite extraordinary to see U.S. justice play out. Again, it played out in a courtroom. A couple other points, then I'll close, and I know we'll move into questions. In 2018, after I left the administration, after a year, the Trump administration published a counterterrorism policy. It was a sound and solid and roundly approved policy that was released to the public that was really focused on multidimensional terrorism threats. Going back again, but before 9-11, post 9-11, all of that learning culminated in a strategy, which might not me mean much to, to people across the country, but it was really important because it gave the interagency an optic, a framing for what the threat is. 
And I was very proud of that strategy because the other point I want to make, especially to this audience, to understand on how balanced that strategy was, we focused not just on the jihadi threat, but we also focused on domestic violent extremists. The first time a counterterrorism policy ever focused on white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And I will tell you, that happened because after I left the White House, my team continued, continued to represent what the threats were, to avoid any politicization of our work, which was really our ethos. I didn't mean today to sound like a cheerleader for the community, but when I have an opportunity to talk to the American public, I love to share the fact that despite the gritty work of counterterrorism, it's the people on my team that work tirelessly and in the interagency, all those anonymous faces that are working on these problems that culminated in a policy output. Sometimes we got it right, sometimes we got it wrong. So I would just close by thanking everyone here for what you're doing, because this is grassroots work, ensuring that we have an informed, thoughtful public and we have great discourse. To be honest with you, I love going out there and being vulnerable, because when I am able to tell the story in a forum like this, most people, if they're objective, will walk away with a sense, just a glimpse of the kind of work that happens at the White House and recognize that this is apolitical work. This is about securing the nation from threats. And that's just one office at the National Security Council. We haven't talked about weapons of mass destruction. We haven't talked about folks that are dialed in on Russia and Ukraine and proliferation and non-proliferation. We haven't talked about any of that. We focused my remarks today on counterterrorism. But thank you for the opportunity in the forum to speak to you today. It's been a privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris. You know, I think a lot of us think of Washington only as a political place, but I know also from my own experience that uh, there's a lot of nonpartisan work that goes on yes, in this forum as well. Uh, we're going to collect questions from our audience, but I always take the opportunity as a moderator to ask the first question just to get things going. And I wanted to kind of go back to first principles, if I could. Um, terrorism seems to have state actor, non-state actor aspects. It has kinetic, direct action. Right. It has non-kinetic, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, indirect actions uh, related to uh, cyberspace and all that. Could you give us a definition of terrorism? What do you mean when you talk about terrorism? Huh. Is it that broad or is it narrower in, the, in a formal sense? That is the most damning question you can be asked right at the outset, and I think George knew that. First of all, I teach at Georgetown. We spend a whole class session with future, future intelligence officers in some cases, and Settling on a definition, or a definition of terrorism is one of those wicked problems. We have statutes, each interagency entity, Department of Defense, Department of Justice, all of the agencies have a separate 
definition for terrorism. But at its root, it's about political violence. And when I say political violence, it could be religiously inspired or it can be some kind of ideological underpinning. It's about violence or threat to violence. That's the most simplistic definition that we settle on after spending a whole class talking about definitions at Georgetown. But there's got to be a political definition for some kind of change. But the elements normally are about violence or threat of violence. The elements are much about uh, some kind of ideology, which is why Las Vegas, we don't know what motivated the lone actor, shooter, killer uh, to take up arms, other than anger at casinos, candidly. And that was in the news recently. Um, so th that is a very loaded question, George. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, that's how I would handle that question. And my Georgetown students hopefully will listen to this as well. Um, it's a, I picked this one first because I had a similar question myself. Um, has the momentum changed between non-state actors, terrorisms, and state actors? Is it, we seem to hear in the media a lot that you know terrorism. We've almost defeated it. We got to be diligent, but it's not the same. But state actors seem to be coming more on the on the horizon. So traditionally, we focused very much on uh, non-state actors. And now we're dealing very much with state actors. Moreover, now we're dealing with the hybridization of threats. What am I talking about? What I'm talking about is now individuals are shopping for their ideology to solve their grievance. So it is that significant that the dynamic is changing. Director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, speaks to that a lot. There was a soldier I mean, in some ways, uh, it's, it's very shameful. As a former army officer, it happens. But a soldier in Italy was dealing with a neo-Nazi group in England that also had white supremacist and neo-Nazi tendencies trying to coordinate with jihadists in Turkey to kill his fellow soldiers on a deployment. That is, the, by definition, the hybridization of threats. What was his ideology? Was he an Islamist terrorist? Was he a white supremacist? What's happening now is we're moving beyond just state actors and non-state actors. There's now a hybrid actors. But I will say state actors are very dangerous. State-sponsored actors like Hezbollah. Hezbollah's a proto, arguably, a proto-government. It delivers humanitarian aid, but it still behaves, acts, and is classified as a terrorist organization. They do the bidding and commit acts of terrorism for Iran. Iran employs their own proxies in places like Yemen, for example. So it is a multi-dimensional threat, and we haven't even dialed in or talked at length about the threat that emanates here in the United States. The first policy published by the Biden administration within a couple months of the new administration was a domestic violent extremism, uh, or domestic terrorism, excuse me, strategy that was published in April of the year President Biden took over. Thank you. Uh, 
Here's a question that I find interesting, which is why I single it out first. Uh, what can the U.S. do to counter the self-radicalized individual who can pot up anywhere in the country? You've talked about organized right. groups, but not about single individuals. Truly, we didn't focus enough work on counter-radicalization. I want you to know that that's my admission to you. I wanted to. I had been dealing with former terrorists that served time in prison on my own time and with Naval Special Warfare Development Group. I had the opportunity to go to prison and talk to former jihadists, individuals that wanted to kill Americans that served time in prison. I wanted to understand how they thought. There's nothing new and markedly different the work that I did compared to many of my colleagues and psychologists, et cetera. But what I did learn, and I wanted to learn firsthand, there is no panacea for this. There is no magic bullet. It has to be awareness. Families have to be engaged. The community has to be involved. The problem is the internet, right? It, it's been a gift to mankind back in the 90s. I mean, I know it happened long before that, but while we're trying to sort the world out in this kids' soccer team, we were also trying to wrestle with how to use the internet, right? At least in the army. And uh, now, individuals can go to their own communities. Think about it in terms of classic, maybe not so classic, a leaker that goes to his own, his own social circle online and he builds a relationship based on ego, that's his motivation, and he decides, I am gonna bolster my ego by sharing the secrets that I know. So there's a hybridization of threats, but those activities play out on the internet. So we didn't focus as much on counter-radicalization. I told you the problems I dealt with on day one. But there's a recognition that we have to do more to, uh, to bolster counter-radicalization programs, which means also engage nonprofits in that. Uh, at the same time, we also have to work with internet providers, which we do very discreetly. You know, when is that speech cross the line from inflammatory to dangerous? Certainly the FBI is not the internet police, but they're also looking for where are those tripwires. We could talk at length about some of the cases that I worked on and some of the jihadists I talked to, but for the sake of time, we'll have to pose that when Donna and I move to Maine, which we're thinking about after yesterday. <laughs> As you might imagine, there's a, a large number of questions related to domestic, terro domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. Um, and covering a lot of different uh, aspects of it. I'd like to ask a few of them here. Um, probably can't get to all of them, but uh, please characterize the differences in strategy, approach, personnel, et cetera, between foreign, uh, countering foreign versus domestic threats, i.e. coordination between federal government and local government and how that, uh, how that actually works. No, that's a terrific question. Whoever answered that, that's that's powerful and gives me an opportunity to say the easier fight in many ways for me was focusing on the foreign threat because we could use all of the instruments of power that this nation has. 
diplomatic intelligence, military, economic strength, and sanctions, right? Um, we had those tools available, and I already talked about the tremendous power of the intelligence community, but also our foreign partners as well, their intelligence community, our foreign intelligence partners. All of that was dialed in on any threats that emanated anywhere in the world. And if it was coming toward the homeland, we started working on that night and day, 24-7. Domestically, is different. We don't have all those tools available. I don't think the vast amount of Americans want all those tools available, clearly. We have civil liberties issues, we have First Amendment issues. So there are tremendous challenges. It's mostly a law enforcement problem. And law enforcement in some ways I don't want to use the word hindered, but they are certainly challenged because of First Amendment rights. As repugnant as it is, it is lawful to be a neo-Nazi. As repugnant as it is, it is not lawful to be a, a neo-Nazi that wants to plan to execute some kind of terror attack, which just happened in Baltimore a few months ago, a conspiracy to, to bring down power lines. So there are challenges on the domestic front, but I also have faith in our law enforcement community in Department of Justice to understand how to balance those threats. So here's uh, asking for your opinion. Which threat to our security is greater? Is it the international or domestic terrorist threat? That's also a loaded question. I, I think currently, I recently wrote an article that I think I shared with you about a new wave of, of um, a new trend. I think now globally there is a trend to focus on anti-government political violence. And I concluded that after going to Germany last fall and then understanding that German Germany had a coup attempt. So forget about talking about January 6th for a second. Let's talk about Germany. Not only do they have a pervasive problem now, ironically, despite their laws and their aggressiveness um, to go after Nazis, but they're identifying that there are neo-Nazis that are working in the intelligence services, not on a, in dramatic numbers. And then there was an attempted coup attempt, a little redundant, there was a coup attempt in December that was broken up by uh, the Federal Republic of Germany. So I am very much concerned because of polarization, because of radicalization, because of this idea of hybridization, I am very much concerned with the domestic threat on a scale. That's where, if you pin me down, George, that's where I would say I am most concerned about right now. Thank you. Then how about the trend? Has, was emphasis on domestic terrorism more or less during the Trump administration as compared with pre and post Trump? I mean, is there a basic trend here or is it, you know, each administration just does their own thing? Well, I did learn that each administration does their own thing, right? <laughs> to be sure, right? I learned that uh, early on. But again, on a terrorism, counterterrorism front, the great news is there is continuity between administrations. 
Um, so on domestic terrorism, as I alluded to and referenced, I wanted to focus not just on counter-radicalization, but I wanted to focus on white supremacists that are radicalizing to commit political violence. I have family members that serve in the FBI. They are not threatened on a day-to-day -day basis, generally, by global jihadists. They're threatened by somebody that's anti-government, and today's the day I'm going to kill an FBI agent, God forbid, or a federal marshal that knocks on my door just to conduct an interview about something. Well, today's that day. That's the threat I was concerned with. So it is personal to me. So, so pers personal aside, I will tell you that was not the significant pervasive threat that we were dealing with on day one. But we got to that. As I said, it was the Trump administration that built in language for the first time in the arc of US counterterrorism history that built domestic terrorism into a terrorism strategy. And again, that doesn't mean much to the American public necessarily, but it meant an awful lot to the interagency. That meant that the interagency was going to focus on two threats, foreign and domestic. And that started under the leadership in the administration. Chris Miller actually was my successor. His team carried those ideas through. The current administration, again, building on the work that was done in the past, seeing what took place on January 6th, and the discord in the United States focused first on domestic terrorism. I think that was excellent continuity. And I will tell you, I'm invited to participate in those discussions as somebody that came from a different administration. In fact, they're all my friends. We cooperate and communicate on hostage-related matters as well as counterterrorism. So let's stick just for another minute or two on uh, the domestic situation. People, someone wants to know whether we're making sufficient progress on things like hardening the power grid, uh, cybersecurity, uh, uh, monitoring biological threats, all of those type of things. Are we putting enough resources and emphasis on these things? Yes, and candidly, the one problem I didn't have to worry about at the White House was cyber. <clears throat> My boss focused on cyber. He was the Homeland Security Advisor and the National Security Advisor, General McMaster. They were my first day-to-day -day supervisors and then the president. Mr. Bossert, the Homeland Security Advisor, and the team from the NSC focused very diligently on offensive cyber and defensive, which you just alluded to, hardening the grid. I had very little focus on cyber unless, and this is worrisome, unless terrorists get access to the same tools that foreign actors have. So that's where my world converged with cyber people. <clears throat> Thank you. Let me switch a little bit now to uh, some country-specific questions that, that people had. Um, several on Syria, and in particular on uh, U.S. policy not to support the Kurdish allies, who are our yep. allies in fight, fight against ISIS in northern Syria when uh, Turkey staged its invasion of the Kurds. Does that have, what, what, if, what influence what are the pluses and minuses? <laughs> so, 
as I told George yesterday, I'm going to be brutally frank to the extent that I can. Syrian Democratic Forces Kurds were our partners. You can't walk away from partners and allies. We have to have a continuity with our allies because we'll call upon them again. And we can't have a reputation, in some ways we already do, for walking away from partners. One of the first decisions, notwithstanding what I shared with you today, was a decision, it was actually on Super, Super Bowl Sunday, right, um, in 2017. Another missed family experience, right? We had to work on the memorandum, that's what you do at the White House, to go to the President to make a decision to arm or not arm the Kurds. The decision was made to give them arms. That was a presidential decision, that's public record. <clears throat> I worked with the Kurds in the early 1990s. They're tremendous partners. They helped us in our defeat ISIS strategy. We made a decision to arm them. The most disappointing, almost policy decision, actually a presidential decision post Costa at the White House was a decision to pull all forces out of Syria. Based on everything I've said today, that presence bolsters our allies and partners. We're talking about the United States, and these are partners that gave up their families and their lives to support our goals in defeating ISIS. And a decision was made hastily, in my humble opinion, on December 19th, if I'm not mistaken, 2018 to pull all forces, or it might have been 17, but I had left the administration to pull out all U.S. forces from Syria. The problem with that, it looked like abandonment of our Kurdish partners and friends and allies. So to me, that was an anathema. It was wrong. It, it hurt. I did something I never did in my life. I sat down with Josh Geltzer, who's in the current White House, and we wrote and nonpartisan, you can look it up in the New York Times opinion piece. And I knew I was at risk on a personal, really on a professional level, but it was the right thing to do to communicate. And I say risk, just professional risk, right? Um, because I spoke out, I think thoughtfully, apolitically, and said, Mr. President, we've done tremendous work as a nation against ISIS. Let's not finish until the job is done. Small footprint, leave forces in place. There was a way and outcry. No one cared what Chris Costa said in the New York Times, but Secretary Mattis ended up resigning over that. There was a big hoopla, obviously, and the rest is history. But what I think is the business I was in, the bulk of my career was working with foreign partners, taking greater risks than I did physically jeopardizing their family. So, the Kurds and any partners that work with us overseas, as long as they're not violating human rights, we have an allegiance to them. Very good. Then let's bring this up to date uh, with the question that's currently in the news. Can you reflect on Syria being invited back into the Arab League? Does this action reflect a normalization of their atrocities? Boy. <laughs> George, you're asking some tough questions. So I saw that this morning. Again, asking. this is going to be personal. I am going to mention a hostage that's being detained in Syria. 
We don't know whether Austin Tice, a former Marine, is alive or dead. I'm hopeful that he's alive, but he's being held by that regime, a regime that committed war, war crimes wholesale against their own population to include weapons of mass destruction. There are pragmatists out there that say, look, this happens, real politics. I have a difficult time accepting that. Austin is languishing somewhere. I believe I have faith that he is out there somewhere. I talked to Mrs. Tice. I know the Tice family. I want him brought home. So no normalization with Syria into those issues, and he's not the only one, by the way, until those issues are resolved, in my opinion. Thank you. Um, someone asked, it felt like virtually all the terrorists you referred to were Muslim. Is it as simple as that? No, as a matter of fact, I don't think that that's the only terrorist I refer to. I mean, I would, I would say that I was very much dialed in on domestic violent extremism, which is exactly why we built neo-Nazis, white supremacists, into the national strategy. But I want to be clear that the focus was defeating ISIS for the threats that I outlined. The fact that they're Muslim, we could debate all day long. It is certainly not the Islam of the friends and the people that I know in the foreign partners that I deal with. It's a different interpretation. It's apocalyptic, it's dark, and it drives, it drives political violence. But we were very much focused on Islamist terrorists because that was the threat that would affect people in this room. It's evolved, now we're focused, I talked more about domestic violent extremism as a result of polarization, as a result of the internet, as, as a result of anger in unhappiness and authoritarianism, in populism. All of those things are colliding in a, in a perfect storm. Then again, something that's uh, in the current news. Any comment on how a 21-year-old a airman got into the intelligence secrets and spread them on the internet? What went wrong? Well, I'll reference my earlier remarks. It's this notion of hybridization. It's this notion of, of a, in, I don't want to be critical of the generations that come behind us, because I'm sure some people in here were critical of my generation, although we're all in the, roughly the same age group, but it's easy to cast aspersions at previous generations. All of that said, this is a, this is a generation that grew up on the internet, which, which goes to the internet to build their own social circles. And all you need is some malign purpose, some grievance. And this young airman that has access to intelligence by virtue, legitimately of his job, and the next thing you know he, what he's doing is putting those, uh, those documents, classified documents, putting them out there, putting them in his closed, supposedly closed circle of friends when he thinks he's doing a duty based on informing, but really what he's doing is satiating his ego. But it just underscores how challenging the world is now, right? And I just realized I've been talking for a really long time. And there's no humor in the work that I did, right? <laughs> 
I am really regretful. I don't know if Miller, Mr. Miller was able, he actually has a very, very uh, unassuming style if he was able to tell any jokes, but it's really difficult and challenging when you're talking about a sober subject such as counterterrorism. But can I share one end on a high note, Certainly, George? Let's end on, let's end on maybe a, high a little note. humor, maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> This wasn't prepared, but I will tell you is the day before Thanksgiving, before I left the administration, and I just want to give you a sense of the work that we did. Every week, every week on a Thursday, we looked at the global threat across the globe, what U.S. interests were threatened by what terrorist groups, what the actionable intelligence was, what is happening to stem those threats. So it wasn't just people talking, it was people doing. That happened every Thursday. Well, Thanksgiving's on a Thursday, right? And uh, I told my team, well, are we gonna do a Thursday meeting? And they said, well, no, it's Thanksgiving. I said, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I was seeing a lot of intelligence. I, we're gonna either do it Wednesday or Thursday, and they're like, boss, it's Thanksgiving. You know. Get a life, right? Uh, relax a little bit. So we had the meeting on Wednesday, as we often did. And I trusted implicit and full tr trust and confidence in my deputy from the FBI, who is an analyst. He ran all of those meetings, and I listened to the intelligence and could offer some, some insight or direction from the office of the president. But that day, one of the briefers, said the threat to Turkey in the next 24 hours is going to be significant and pervasive. And I stopped what I was doing, and I started asking all kinds of questions until this briefer in another agency smiled, and I realized I didn't get the joke. <laughs> like, I, I didn't get it, because that was the world we were in. Um, when I was farewelled and left the White House, everybody reminded me of that pre-Thanksgiving threats meeting. <laughs> so that's the only joke. That's the best I got. But it, it has been a privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Christopher Costa. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other past Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.